For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, are preserved by the same word, and are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. In the Christian religion, hope looks forward to the future with a joyful expectation. I have said before, and it is a fairly poignant point, that Christianity is the only world religion that makes hope a cardinal virtue. The rest don't necessarily hate it, but they don't make it a major virtue. Whereas in Christianity, hope is a big thing. It's one of the big three, faith, hope, and love. But the reason why Christian uh, hope can look forward to the future is because it is rooted in Christian faith. Faith in the Christian religion looks backward. It looks back to actions that God has taken in history where Emmanuel has been among us, God with us, and in the person of Emmanuel, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, 
Nazareth, God has done certain things in the past. He has kept his covenant, which he has promised. Everything he said he would do, he did. Christ was our prophet, our priest, our king. His blood has covered us. We are redeemed because of things that happened 2,000 years ago. Christianity looks forward in hope, but it looks backward in faith. The spirit of the age, at least for the last 200 years, has taken faith and has pulled it from the past and put it in the future. Faith is the foundation. It is what we build our hope from, but humanity has begun to chant a mantra of progress, progress, progress. Everything that we long for and that we trust in, our foundation of our hope is in coming ages. We will progress, progress, progress. Man will make the world better in the future than it is today. This has been the cry of mankind really since the Enlightenment, but it has truly picked up speed today. Progress is considered to be a great virtue. To look to the past is the exact opposite of the spirit of the age. Everything good is going to happen in the future, and that's where we're going to put our true faith. We're going to put our faith that what we're progressing towards is going to give us the answers. Now, progress is an interesting word. Those who shout progress, 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 assume that it means we are going to be progressing upwards, that things are going to get better. Whereas the word does not have to mean that. When you have cancer, cancer progresses, but it doesn't get better, it gets worse. When you flush a toilet, it progresses down the drain, but not to a better place, but to a worse one. Progress is just movement. But we have made progress a great virtue and have placed our faith in the future where Christian hope is supposed to be, but not Christian faith. Christian faith looks back on what God has done in the past, and the spirit of the age says the past is nothing. The past is dark ages and social mores that we no longer like and uh, just general ickiness. There's nothing to be found in the past. Look to the future. Look to the future. Progress, progress, progress. As the apostle begins the last third of this epistle to us, he does not tell us to look forward to progress and to put our faith in what is ahead. He rather reminds us that our minds have been purified. He speaks of our pure minds. But he says those minds need to be turned to the past. It starts off with, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. 
to remember is to think of the past. It is to remember what God has done. Christianity is absolutely the antithesis of the cry, progress, progress, progress. Peter says, remember what has taken place in the past. If you hold to that worldview, if you look back to what God has done and put your hope in something in the past, society will say you are looking the wrong way. But progress, progress, progress requires you to believe that mankind itself is getting better and there is something to truly put your faith in as man's betterment becomes better and better. The voice of the scripture is to look to the past. I remind you of something, says Peter. Or perhaps we should turn to Jeremiah, who had a very similar statement in Jeremiah chapter 6. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But, they said, we will not walk in it. Look to the past, says the prophet. Remember, says the apostle, there are good and holy and just ways in the past given by God. Look to those, look backwards to them, find a foundation for your faith in the past that you may have hope in the future. But this is not just a looking back to the past for its own sake. In chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, do not ask why the old days were better than these, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this question. Solomon's advice is talking about a sense of nostalgia for the past, which you can see people take up. Surely things were better in our grandfather's days than ours. Life was better. People were better. No, they weren't. That is merely taking the rough edge off human nature. Just to look back to the past is just to look at human beings that are back there. Human beings come in two varieties. They come in the saved and the lost. And I assure you that in 1920, there was just as much sin as there was in 2020. The apostle says, I remind you of something, but he roots the remembrance in a very specific place. He roots it in the prophets and the apostles. That you may be mindful of the words, says Peter, which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. There is as much hopelessness in the past as there is in the future. But the apostle says there is a foundation, there is a, a solid support for hope, and that is what God has said through prophet an apostle, or the way Paul puts it in Ephesians. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, 
But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Paul says God has spoken by apostle and prophet, and Christ is what holds it all together. And this is a foundation for you to build your life on, and you're being built on it. God is building you into a holy house on the apostles and prophets, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone. But it is interesting that the apostle Peter, in speaking, while he refers to Christ, he says, we are apostles of our Lord and Savior Christ. He doesn't point us back to uh, the writings of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, God has spoken tangibly in Jesus Christ to you. He says, I would have you remember the words of the prophets and the words of us, the apostles. That might strike one as odd, and one might go, well, what about the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ? Peter, shouldn't you point us to the words of Christ? Is it Jesus himself the greatest revelation of God? He is the word of God himself. He is the final word to man. He is the very covenant itself. So, Peter, why are you saying that what I want you to remember is the words of the prophets and of the apostles? There is an entire movement inside of what could very broadly be called evangelical Christianity, called red-letter Christians. Are you familiar with this? It basically says that the word of God to man is what Jesus of Nazareth, the word of God in flesh, says to us. You should get yourself a red-letter Bible because the words of Christ are in red, and all that stuff in black is really just not that important. Rather, the words of Jesus, that is the good stuff. And your entire religion should be built on the words of Jesus. I would ask you a question. What words did Jesus of Nazareth ever write? What book of Holy Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is Jesus of Nazareth the author of? Well, spiritually, he is the author of all of them. But, but as far as taking pen and ink to paper, he is the author of none of them. There is no written work that came from the pen of Jesus of Nazareth, which means if you are reading, quote, the words of Christ, end quote, you are reading the words of Christ as they are told to you by someone else. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they are mediating the words of Christ to you. They are apostles of Christ, as we have looked before. That means that they are official spokesmen of Christ. He has given them his very words to declare but there are no words of Christ you receive directly. So if you are a, quote, red-letter Christian, and you're saying, you know, that black stuff doesn't matter, it's just the red stuff, 
The reason you're saying that is because you want to cut away the black stuff. There are things in the Bible that you don't like, and you want to say, well, that's human, but these are the words of Christ. Well, in actuality, you don't have any words of Jesus of Nazareth that come to you, but by way of his messengers. So there is no legitimate red-letter movement to be had. Now, you may ask yourself, why is it that that's the case? Because Jesus of Nazareth is the Word of God embodied. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the central focus of all that's happening in history. And the apostles and the prophets are merely his servants. So why is it that Jesus of Nazareth has arranged it so that we hear of him through them? Well, the answer is fairly straightforward. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? But he is the son of God, therefore heir to all creation. And he is the son of David, the great king. He is a royal personage. He is not your buddy in the sense of Al, who you hang out with. He condescends to call us friends, but Jesus Christ is the royal king. As the Godhead had to remind the visible church many times in many ways, to be a king has certain expectations in what you do and in how you are received. In the prophet Malachi, uh, this is what the prophet says to God's people. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Nor will I accept an offering from your hands, for from the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, thus you bring an offering. 
Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Jesus of Nazareth has all the great kingliness of his father. He is the true king of Israel. He is the true king of the church. Kings send legates. Kings send ambassadors. Kings send forth apostles to decree their royal decrees. That's what you expect from a king. A king does not usually come down among his subjects. When he does, it is a remarkable occurrence. It is an amazing condescension of the king that he would walk among us. And for three and a half years, our king did do that. The very word of God in flesh, you could go ask a question of. Amazing, amazing mercy, incredible love. But we forget that he is the king, that he is the royal one, and it is only natural that he would send forth his word by way of messengers, because that's what kings do. And so the apostle is telling us to remember Jesus the Christ, because Jesus the Christ has spoken by the prophets and the apostles. He is the chief cornerstone in that he holds all that together. But he has spoken by the apostles and prophets and their beloved, and that's Peter's word, their beloved root your lives in remembrance. Do not look to the present moment where there is constant fads. Do not look to the future where humanists tell you that everything will be better then. Look in remembrance to the apostles and the prophets, because that is where your pure minds will find a true stability for your souls. And stability you will need because the very next thing the apostle moves on to is there will be mockers. Jesus, our king, has never hid the fact that if you are in his kingdom, you are not going to be terribly popular with all the other kingdoms, which are in fact in contradiction and conflation with the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There will be mockers, there will be scoffers, says the Holy Spirit, speaking through the apostle. Knowing this first, says verse 3, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. We've been working through the epistle of 1 John in the morning, and just like Peter who says, look, the first thing you need to realize when you're remembering what we told you is that mockers are going to come, the apostle John says the same thing. In 1 John 3.13 and verse 4, 5, and 6, he says, Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. He has to say that because there are people who are marveling because the world hates them, and they find that very surprising. 
And the apostle says from the spirit, don't be surprised. You have taken your stand with the king of kings and the Lord of lords. To you he is precious, Peter told us in his first epistle. But to those who have rejected him, he becomes a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling. They will not like the stone that crushes them, and they will not like anybody loyal to him. You are of God, little children, says John, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It's going to happen. There is an us and a them. And if you are part of us, you can't be part of them. They will see to it. The spirit of the world fills them. The spirit of God fills you. And it makes a distinction. It makes an exclusivity. They will come and they will mock and they will jeer and they will attack. But in reality, their very existence demonstrates to a certain degree the truth and validity of the claims of Jesus of Nazareth. G.K. Chesterton did not love us. G.K. Chesterton was an Anglican who, in his day and in his place, the Anglican church had become so utterly corrupt and so utterly unspiritual, he jumped ship and he became Roman Catholic because in his England, Roman Catholicism actually had more spirituality than Protestant Anglicanism. And he said a number of things about Calvinists in particular that aren't terribly nice. But he also is an incredibly profound writer and in one of his major works, he said, uh, paraphrasing, but he said, one of the greatest testimonies to the reality of the truth of the gospel is the fact that men can blaspheme it. He said, there are those who seek to blaspheme Christ, to mock him, to revile him, to say evil things about him. Passion pours out of them. Okay. Let's run an experiment, says Chesterton. I want you to go outside and go to the highest hill you can find, and I want you to mock and revile Thor. I want you to blaspheme Thor. Can you do that? Well, the average person goes, well, no. That would be silly. And Chesterton says, you're right. We have seen through history that Thor is a false god. There is at this point really nobody of any significance who is worshiping Thor. And even if you have the occasional pagan who says, I'm going to really show the Christian church, I'm going to go back and worship a pagan, you're not really worshiping Thor. I mean, honestly, nobody believes that Thor is real except in Marvel Comics. So it's really, really hard to hate him. It's really, really hard to blaspheme him. But mockers will come, mocking and jeering. They are filled with passion and venom. The only kind of passion and venom that you can have against something that's right there to hate. And so the apostle says, you know, uh, remember we told you, mockers are going to come. 
But that's actually something of a testimony to the truth of Christ. Now, you may ask yourself, what is the spiritual estate of these scoffers, these mockers, those who jeer? Well, Peter has already spent chapter 2 talking about their spiritual estate, so he kind of just does a summary here. But he says, knowing first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust. You know, it's, it's not really deeper than that. There is a desire to look at the human soul and try to find great complexity there. You know, one of the hats that I wear is Christian counselor. Uh, I read the literature. I've got a degree in it. And there is a desire to find in the human soul a great depth of complexity. What a marvel is the inside of man. It is beyond knowing. You know, no, it's not really true, actually. Human beings are actually pretty simple. And Peter says they're walking according to their own lusts. And that's what's going on. Lust is addictive. Lust is masterful. Now, the word lust doesn't just mean sexual. It means any desire that's against God's will. But it's enslaving, and people take, are, are taken hold of by their lust. Why are these people angry at Christ and mocking and jeering? Well, he's the king, like we've been talking about. And kings are fairly opinionated. They don't ask you if it's okay for them to make rulings. They don't ask how to set up their kingdoms. They set their kingdoms up, and you are the citizen, and you are expected to comply. Well, human flesh hates that with a passion. It gets in the way of their lusts, and so mockers come, and they walk according to their, their, their lusts, and they say and do many things, and Peter has in chapter 2 talked about many of those things, but as he comes to the end of this part of the letter, he brings up something really, really fascinating that the current biblical church just doesn't tend to think about or read. What is it they say? Well, and say, where is the promise of his coming? Christ said he would return. You talked about the return of Christ in Bible study. It is the great hope of the Christian church that our king will come bodily for, for his church. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So the attack is Christ has not returned. The supporting argument is, look, he can't return because we have uniformitarianism. Now you may ask, what is that large word? It is a philosophical word that says the natural laws of creation are eternal. Time, space, gravity, birth, death, old age, uh, anything you can think about as a natural law it's not created. It has always been here. It will always be here. And everything has always acted according to natural law. There has never been a time where natural law has been broken because natural law can't be broken. 
gravity always works. That's just the way things are, say these false teachers. And that is the current spirit of the current philosophical world that we live in. We are said to live in a scientific world. Well, to some degree, that's correct, and science has produced a lot of very interesting things, but there is a philosophy that has been melded with it that is the exact philosophy these false teachers are saying. Natural law is eternal. Time is eternal. None of these things have a beginning. None of these things have an end. They are as eternal as you think God is, and they are incorruptible. With that thought, no miracle can take place. There can be no second coming. There can be no resurrection of the dead. There can be no worldwide flood because that breaks how natural law is supposed to work. Everything continues as it always has since the fathers fell asleep. Everything is uniform. The only problem with that says the apostle, is it simply not true? God is the creator of all things, and that includes natural law. God created time. God created space. God created gravity. There was a time when these things were not. And Peter reminds us that Natural law bends and flows at God's command. There was a time, says Peter, when God had created all things, but the land was all under the water, and God said, you know, land, rise, and suddenly there was land coming out of the water. He reminds us that God speaks, and natural law gets out of the way. It's very present in creation, in the very first chapter of the Bible, God says, let there be, and then there is. That's not natural law. That is divine sovereignty over everything. Now, in the spirit of our age, these false teachers' philosophy has taken hold with a passion. And in the very visible church of God, you will hear people say, you know, I read the Old Testament, and there's things there I just really can't buy into. You know, creation out of nothing, I don't think I buy into that. Um, you know, the, the sun stood still, and a battle continued because the sun you know, didn't move. How could that possibly be, according to natural law? I don't think I believe that. Oh, but I believe the New Testament. I believe in Jesus of Nazareth. I believe in all the holy things that I read in the Gospels. Uh, there are more people like this than you might imagine. I, I believe in the Gospels. I don't believe in all that stuff back then. What is the functional difference between creating everything out of nothing and by your very word making water into wine? What is the functional difference? In both cases you have created something out of nothing because to turn water into wine, you got to put stuff in it to make it. It's got to ferment and that sort of thing. And Jesus just commands, let it be wine, and it is. 
So if you believe the Gospels, if you believe in Jesus of Nazareth, you can't philosophically be uniformitarian because Jesus dies and raises again. Jesus heals the sick. Jesus raises the dead. If you claim to belong to Jesus of Nazareth, you can't believe natural law is inviolable. There was a time, says Peter, when things were not the way they are now, and God made them the way they are, and there is a time when they will be different because God will will it. But the false teachers teach it has always been this way. And so you Christians are waiting for the coming of Christ, but he's not going to come back because that would break natural law. Well, it's going to break natural law. Now, you might ask a question. Is there, uh, is there any logical defense for the idea that there has never been miracles? Is that a rational point of view? Is, is that where true reason would take us? Well, the answer is no, to be honest. And the apostle says of them, for this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that was then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So Peter says they willfully forget this. If you climb Mount Everest and you dig into the stone, do you know what you find? You find seashells on Mount Everest. There is evidence all over the world that when God willed it, a flood covered the whole earth, which it does not now cover the whole earth. And if you believe in uniformitarianism, you would have to say, well, there can't be a flood on the earth. That doesn't happen. Well, it doesn't except when God wills it. And there is evidence of plenty. There is all sorts of evidence, but... If you want to be a mocker, if you want to walk according to your own lusts, you put your fingers in your ears and you, you cover your eyes and you say, I don't hear anything and I don't see anything. And again, that's as deep as this gets. A true enemy of the gospel wants you to believe, I am an atheist because there is just not evidence for God. If God would show me himself somehow, if God would somehow manifest evidence of his existence, oh, I assure you I would believe. But the only problem with that is the entire creation does have his fingerprints on it. And if you go to the discipline of philosophy, all of the great philosophers say we live in a causal universe where everything comes from something. Where that is has to have a first cause, which can't be caused. We literally, by the very existence we live in time and space, causing things and being caused, 
We are a walking testimony to the existence of God. Why do they mock? Why do they jeer? They want to. That's it. And there's not a lot of arguing with that. There are some questions that atheists will have that are legitimate, and we should answer those. You see the Apostle Paul doing that in some of his letters. But basically, Peter says, as I bring this epistle to the end, I want you to build your life on the apostles and prophets. I want you to remember that. You have pure minds, or as we saw in Bible study this morning, you've been given an understanding. But there's going to come enemies that are going to attack the gospel. They are going to assure you that they have a logical, intellectual reason for doing so, and they don't. They will tell you everything has been this way since the beginning of time, and it hasn't. And they will tell you it will always be this way into the future, and it won't. The sovereign God is Lord over his creation. And isn't it interesting how the issue of creation comes up all over the Bible? It is not just reserved to the first couple chapters of Genesis as if it were some sort of introductory show, and then after that we can kind of get past it. The Apostle Peter says that in the last days, and these are the last days, there will be people who will come that will do what? They will attack creation. They will attack the doctrine that God created natural law. Uh, that's where we are. We, we are in a spot where creation is central to the question of the gospel. It's a very religious proposition that natural law is eternal. What happens if you believe that natural law is eternal? That is, it is not caused, it doesn't have an origin, it just is, it always has been, and always will be. What happens when you believe that? Well, the truth is, you have a God. That God is a monism in that it's not sentient. It doesn't know you. It doesn't know itself. But it is an uncaused cause that has caused everything else. You have a God. Your God is the natural laws, and you believe they are eternal. There is no getting away from the fact that there is a God. But if you are wanting to walk in your own lusts, a God who doesn't know you and doesn't have a good plan for your life and doesn't even know itself is much more comforting for some reason, even though you will at some point die. Peter says, realize there are people who are going to go that route. They're going to mock the gospel. But you build yourself on the apostles and prophets. There you will find Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, because they are his messengers. Thanks be to God.